about five years ago, six years ago now, maybe more even, I started taking these repeated lineup riders. You can see it in the background of this guy. Mm-hmm. And you know the iconography, those repeat, I call them lineups, real original, but those repeated silhouettes of riders coming towards you, which I cooked up after an amazing experience in China of all things. And the more traditional working cowboys and cowgirls like this guy, I started mashing them together. And the very first one ended up being very formative. And, you know, I see it today and I think what I could do differently, but I'm so proud of it and so grateful for it. I had been up on a ladder painting the upper part of it. And I got down and I moved the ladder to the other side and I got back up and I think it was about five in the morning. And I was painting the left side of the upper reaches of this canvas. And I looked over and I had no physical memory of having just been there. First time in my life, like, whoa, how, how did that happen? It scared me to be honest, kind of shook me up. And, um, and uh, but, I, but I sat with it for a while and I, and I started to experience that very thing you're talking about. Like this, this happened, yes, because of me, yes, through me, but it also happened independent of me. And um, I'm becoming a big believer in that. Now I am the author of this. So when in doubt, if, if there's not an actual idea popping up, just draw. And you hear writers say, just write. Um, uh, filmmakers say, just go film things. It's true. If I just draw, things happen. That's why I think that's why I don't fear the empty page. It's always been such a great, welcoming place to do anything. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Waddell Living It, where we talk with experts in the experience of being human. Today, we have Duke Beardsley, who is a sixth generation Coloradian. He is an artist working in the cowboy genre. He said that he is an unapologetic fan of all things cowboy. This to me is, is really cool to see where the cowboy part of it goes, but Duke is I don't know. I mean, I'm going to embarrass him a little bit here. He's he, he's a philosopher. He's he's a bit of an environmentalist. He's a great friend and has been a great friend for a long time. So this is going to be a wide ranging conversation, and I hope you strap in and enjoy it. Duke, welcome. Thank you, Watts. It's so good to be here. It's great to see you as always. It is always a pleasure. You know, it's it's so funny. I mean, like I. I love what you're doing. I mean, I just, I've loved the art part of it. I do have to say, I was looking through your stuff and I, and I might have a favorite. Am I allowed to have a favorite? Yeah, please. Maybe it'll help me find one. Well, it was funny. I, I, I love the, the Caballo Blanco, the white on white. Yeah. 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 It was super cool. I mean, just. I, I appreciate so, that. Exactly. I mean, I'd imagine it's a little bit different. It's a little bit of a departure from some of the stuff that you do, uh-huh. but that's got to be the cool part is that it is a bit of a departure. Yeah. I was looking through and doing some research mm-hmm. and where you went to art school. So you went to uh, the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. Right. And their mission is learn to create, influence, change. Yeah. And and that seemed a little bit different for me. I mean, I think the idea of art oftentimes is that we are, you know, you go and you, you create art and, and you do art and hopefully it's beautiful and people like it. So is this different than like Da Vinci being in Ver- Ver- Veraccio's workshop or, or is it the same? Well, interesting you picked Da Vinci. I mean, in my opinion, arguably one of the greatest innovators 
uh, of philosophy, engineering, art. Um, he, he was one of the great changers of his time and in my opinion. And so in some respects, no, not all that different. Um, the, the mission of Art Center uh, and the mission of the, of the great artists of all time, I think kind of go hand in hand. And that's one of the things I loved about that school was this sense of, we're not just gonna teach you technique or craft or, or philosophies of art. We're gonna teach you to actually do something original and do something um, important, hopefully. And, uh, and I found that really captivating. It's what drew me there in the first place. So is it the change in art? Is it the change in society? Is it the change personally? Is it all of it? I think so. I, as really well said, I, I think it is all of it. Um, you know, I, I was an art history major at Middlebury where we went to school together. And and what I loved about art history and, and, and the great John Hunnisack was one of my most influential teachers there was we look at the world's history, our own history as people on the planet through the art we've made. And it tells us so much about ourselves. It tells us everything. If you're willing to look at it maybe with a little different lens. And so uh, I, think it's, I think it's everything. Um, how we express ourselves, which is what art is, is self-expression, again, in my opinion, um, is a reflection of how we are. And so I think it is everything. I hope well, so. But it's also interesting what you've chosen, right? The cowboy genre. Yeah. So, so kind of split time, right? Between Denver and Eastern Colorado, which, yeah. which, which sometimes I, I probably unflatteringly call it, call it like Western Kansas, right? I mean, it's Fair Eastern enough. Colorado is not what you assume about Colorado. It's pretty it's darn flat all. out there. You no, know, no. Well said again. It's not at all. It's, it, it's, a, it's the high plains. We're the, we're the high desert edge of the Great Plains here on the front range of the Rocky Mountains. We're a very unique ecosystem. Uh, and, and it is not what people think of when they think of Colorado, but it's half the state and or almost half the state. And it is a vast populated, productive part of our state. So yeah, growing up uh, on a cattle ranch uh, part-time, I grew up in Denver and on this ranch, um, kind of out where the mountains really fizzle out into the plains was an amazing experience and a great, a great juxtaposition from the suburban middle-class uh, city boy life that I had. Uh, so, and very much formed the art I'm doing. Um, in addition to helping me choose my genre, and it's been with me since I was very little, the cowboy icon, it's also took a while for me to realize that I want to look at a traditional icon with a contemporary real-time view, uh, real-time energy. I want my art to be of my time, uh, not historic West, but to today's West. So a uh, pretty formative experience, really, really fun. It's it, it really is interesting just looking at it and looking at the cow, cowboy genre because I mean we see it right and it's the Russell and the Re and the Rembrandt and those kinds of things and bronze busts and yeah. eagles and headdresses and yeah right and these kinds of and, and you have parts of that parts yes but then yeah. why why modern and and because obviously it has to be personal but how does it how does it get to be personal for you in terms of like how you see that world and then how you're portraying that world to the rest of us. Man, this is so spot on to what I've been thinking around about the last few weeks and months. You know, uh, it's personal because it's my everyday life. Um, you know, in terms of the actual images I paint, the cowboys and cowgirls, the horses, the activities they're doing are things I see and witness and participate in all the time, all year round. Most of the people I paint are friends 
or really good friends. I've ridden a lot of the horses I paint. Um, I've, I own some of them. Um, I mean, so it's a very personal part of my life. It's that dual upbringing I was kind of talking about is, is, um, the, the city art life and the rural art life. I mean, they kind of coexist. So, um, but in terms of the timing of now trying to bring a contemporary lens to it, I mean, when I was studying art history for the first time I, in college, I had my eyes open to modern art and that wonderful world of, of, of change and evolution in the arts. And it really shook my snow globe in a big way. And I think that education and my reverence for the Remington and Russell era and the way they painted the West. And keep in mind, those guys in a lot of respects were painting a West that had already gone by too. You know, they did experience some of that West personally, especially Charlie Russell who lived in Montana, but they painted a lot of things that had already happened and they put a lot of uh, nostalgia into their work. And so that's great. And I love that stuff, but I want to paint my West and it's very different than the traditional romanticized West of Western art. You know, I've, I ride big ranches with big crews and we talk about drought and market fluctuation and economies and politics and religion and changing in population in the Intermountain West. I mean, these are real time issues that I want to affect what I paint. So I hope that answers that question. No, it does. It does. And, and you mentioned nostalgia. So we're going to have to diverge slightly and you're going to have to quote your brother it was one of your brothers, right? Who said this brother, and, yeah. and, and it's yeah. painted on the corner of yeah. your studio right here. here. Yeah. So, so what's, what's the reminder for you? Uh, well, it's a, it's a tough answer. It's a hard thing to answer. The reminder is daily and the reminder is ever changing. Uh, the quote, if people can see it, too many approaches to the American West hinge on the nostalgic. And the problem with nostalgia is that it's rife with sentimentalism. And the problem with sentimentalism is that it's boring as shit. <laughs> and and it, that's a little bit more tongue in cheek and a little bit more confrontational than my actual everyday feelings about nostalgia. But it's a reminder to keep looking, to keep thinking, to keep analyzing. There's nothing wrong with nostalgia, in my opinion. I'm a very nostalgic guy, but I don't want to get uh, too far away. One of the problems or challenges with nostalgia for me artistically as a driving force is it can be very quickly um, restrictive towards growth, originality, change. I want those things. I don't know why I just do. So I have to be careful to it's ticklish is the word I like to use. It can be, it can be a nuance, a nuance. So as you mentioned, some of the aspects of the things that I paint make their way through from a nostalgic time. Some of the accoutrement and the, the styles that I present things uh, we've seen and felt before, but hopefully, um, hopefully dragging them into a more contemporary, my more contemporary view. So it's, it's interesting because, and, and I share, I feel like I share a philosophy with you in this sense, in that it is like nostalgia in some ways is static, right? It's that thing that we just want to capture it and we want to. Which, which in some ways is what you do as an artist too. Like you're capturing that moment. You're so spot on. This is great. Absolutely. I totally know what you're talking about. I've been wrestling with this for weeks. Uh, you know, the act of making something artistic, writing something, creating a dance, making a film, making a painting, making a sculpture, weaving something, whatever it is you do. The minute you do it, 
you've entered in, you've, that's a nostalgic act because from that point forward, no matter how we got there, we're looking back. We are, which is in some ways, it's, it's a form of death in some ways. Too. <laughs> it's, just, it's just like Die a it, little bit every day. It's there and we, and we stop. And, and, and whereas you're talking about the other side of it, I mean, the diametrically opposed, and I think we have this conflict as, as human beings, right? That we want to get to a point where we're like, where we're like successful and like, that's it. I'm successful. And it's like, yeah, so but who are you? Well, I'm successful. This is it. Success, success can be the kiss of death for creatives, right? Well, because you have to continue to learn and grow and dream and struggle, which is, which is the painful part of where you might wake up at 4.30 in the morning and get to your studio, right? And, yeah. and you're struggling with this. And so, so that's part of the battle. And I would imagine that also you're riding with all of these people. And mm -hmm. one of the hopes is, is to celebrate them, yeah. to celebrate who they are, to portray it in a way that they go, damn right. Like yeah. that's, that's who I am. That's what I'm all about. Yeah. How hard is that? It can be very, um, and I, I just love that you're picking up on these things. You know, when, when I portray friends, uh, and actually this cat over my shoulder is actually someone I don't know very well, but I've seen him ride numerous times. And um, so I feel personally connected to, to how he works with a horse and he rides great horses. That's why I picked it. But when I ride with friends and then I turn around and go paint them, for me, the biggest challenge is actually not... Um, the challenge of capturing their likeness or something that depicts them perfectly, but it's to genericize. Does that make sense? To, to generalize it. So, you know, I say this to collectors all the time. If I paint Chris and, I, and it looks like Chris, that's great if we want a painting of Chris. But in such a tried and true genre as Western iconography, you know, cowboy painting, cowgirl painting, if I just paint Chris, that limits the narrative, in my experience, that the viewer can have with the painting. But if I put Chris's hat down, if I tip Chris away, shadow part of his face, and you only see part of Chris, which can be generic, then you will automatically have your own dialogue with that painting. You'll put anybody you want into that situation. Right. So I can put myself into that situation. Yourself, your relatives, your friends, a memory from a different life. You can put all anything. And my experience is you do. You actually do. If I paint Bob, you kind of stop with Bob. If I paint just enough of Bob for you to tell your own story, you automatically do. That's an interesting one because that's, there's a bit of a dilemma there too, isn't there? Because I always feel like there is. Uh -oh. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's cool. This is, so, so like in writing, I mean, like I've done some writing and stuff like that. And, and certainly like personal kinds of things where I feel like the more honest I am, the more specific I am, the more general I end up, my, my message can be. And, uh, you know, which, which is kind of interesting, you know, because I think that, that some of that is, is sort of the accuracy of, of what you're talking and, and portraying the moment, but then also not being as, as specific that it's one person that then people can be can be the protagonist in their own artwork. Totally agree. Yep. And I, I can only imagine as a writer because I'm a bad writer, but I think I think you're talking about the exact same thing. I agree with you. It's a, and the funny thing when I I was actually just trying to write of all things about nostalgia, the biggest challenge is that in trying to discuss it 
I became nostalgic, totally. And I am a very nostalgic cat. So I just, uh, it's almost like turn into the, you know, steer in the direction of the skid, in other words, you know, go into it, uh, confront this problem. And, 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 and not, that, not that connecting with a painting is a problem, but if what I want is to make as personal a connection as I can for a viewer of a piece I've painted, the best thing to do is make it as general as possible uh, so they can tell their own story. It, it, it's interesting, and it's interesting you say the steer to the skid because that totally triggered this. Uh, and you're a man of quotes as well, where Neil Young said, "You know, steer into the into the ditch," yeah. kind of thing. You know, it's like where it, this is that whole like the static, the nostalgia versus like what's next. And it's like you know, as an artist, it's what's next has got to be super exciting, but also really Terrifying. scary <laughs> scary yeah yeah terrifying or scarifying is i guess oh, i'm trying to say yeah absolutely i mean uh yeah i mean I, people people are very kind and say all kinds of nice things and you must be experiencing this and like no i'm pretty sure that's the last painting i'm ever going to get painted and there's no chance it's going to sell and this is all going to end yesterday you know and that's a little bit of my own neuroses obviously but it also keeps me kind of edgy kind of desperate, kind of hungry. And that's the only way I know to be. And um, it drives my wife crazy, but I, I, uh, I kind of appreciate whatever experiences went in to make me not take any of this for granted uh, as best I can, because, um, you know, what can we ever take for granted? Life's not guaranteed. So how does that work in terms of, in terms of motivation? Like what's the, what's the most intimidating part of the process for you? Is it a blank canvas? Is it then trying to find a buyer? It, what, what are, what's the hardest part where you're like, I got to get my act together and just go. Yeah. I love that question. You know, strangely, what seems to be consistently the hardest part of my art process and, and experience is uh, not not the beginning. I love empty canvases. The, the possibilities on an empty canvas have always been there for me, and I'm so grateful because I don't know why that is. I know a lot of artists who just blank, but I, that's not my problem. And selling, I've been so lucky, so lucky, uh, unbelievably so, that that I don't fear the chance to sell. I, I relish it and, and try to stay very grateful for it. It's the middle ground. It's the, uh, I've got this started, and I know where we're going to put it, it's what my mind turns into this grind of monotony, which it isn't, uh, of getting the work done. And which is, it's just my mind messing with me because I love to do this, but that's the hardest part is this kind of middle between. Um, I happen to view the inspiration, the initial inspiration is the art. The rest is craft, the rest is technique and, and and uh, philosophy and uh, intellectualizing and, and, and anyone can learn technically to draw and paint. It's like math, you can learn to do it. You may not be Rembrandt, but you can learn to, to draw and paint effectively, representationally. Um, it's that middle ground of inspiration has struck. We know where we're gonna send it. Now roll up your sleeves, turn up the music and get the work done. That's the hard part. It's, it, it's, it's an interesting question and, and I can say that, that anyone can learn because I actually like read a book and taught myself to draw. I know you did. And you drew your, your book. <laughs> My children's book. It's I great. Drew. It's great. I love that you did it. 
It is hysterical. My wife, I've given my, I mean, it's, it's one of these things and you probably, I don't know if you're allowed to get away with this being who you are, but like I can do it for like, for like Valentine's day. Like I did a, uh, our, our dog was kind of lying there and had like the little, like the half a notch of like a heart in her, you know, in her chest with her paws and, yeah. and all that. And so I did it. I did a drawing of her with a little heart for Valentine's day. And my wife actually has it, has it uh, framed in her closet, you know, which it. is one of those. And you like, I can get away with that. Like, Oh, that's giving me so much, you know, like you put your heart and soul into this thing. Can you get, can you get away with that? Cause I mean, for you, I've watched you draw and it blows me away. Just like, I'm like, that is so cool that you create something that something just becomes alive on well, a page. I love that. I do. And I appreciate hearing that. And you know, one of the great, things for me my entire life is how much I love to draw. It has always been my anchor to windward. It has always been how I process the world. And so giving that experience, I mean, what, for what it provides me personally, internally, that any modicum of that can go out to someone else. The fact that people love watching me draw is, is one of the great gifts of my, of my career, of my life. Cause I love to do it. I'm not, I'm strangely not self-conscious about it. And you know, between you and me, nine, out of 10 times, something goes dreadfully wrong when I, when I draw in public. But I learned to not care about that anymore and uh, and really just enjoy the experience. So I can get away with some things. Uh, you know, sometimes I give somebody something and, and, it, and it's generally meant and it's generally received. But then I walk around wondering, like, do I have to do better next time? <laughs> do I have to? Is there something up here now? You know, and, and that's just it's all in my head. But no, I, uh, I, I, I get away with murder, as it turns out, in the art world. Uh, but um, drawing is a wonderful companion and always has been. So I love that you've, uh, that you've practiced it yourself. I dig it. It's so great. I respect it more. And this is probably the one thing that I learned from going through the process of learning how to draw yeah. is that I saw things differently. Right. Yeah. Like I, I was, you know, I was, I think it was a cover of a magazine. Like I was trying to copy this and I was like, that is a spectacular ear, not the ear that I drew, right. but like you're... an ear, like as a beautiful entity. And like, whoever said that in the world ever, like, you know, oh, an ear, what an attractive ear that is. Like, yeah, nobody ever <laughs> said that. There are people out there who are fascinated with ears. Uh, that's funny. You know, I had this teacher at school named Norm Sherman, and sadly, he's no longer uh, with us, but he was one of the most formative drawing teachers I've ever had. And he it was the most unorthodox in terms of traditional drawing classes I ever had, because Norm had us drawing fighter jets and peacocks and uh, you know, just we were all over the map and we drew in pen. So you can't erase your mistakes. And we drew fast. And he was this kinetic energy ball and he was just a hoot. And he had a book, he put out a book. It, it was really hard to get. It was called to draw is to see. And uh, you're spot on. And, and that experience for me with Norm changed everything, you know, like so many good teachers, it was just this turning point. You know, I no longer saw and drew the way I had I, I changed. So I'm with you. Ears are, ears are wonderful. Ears are great. As an artist, do you feel like you see the world differently? And, and with seeing it differently, do you have a bit of a responsibility to then show the rest of us what's beautiful or what you see to be beautiful? Uh, wow. No, <laughs> I, no. I, don't, I don't. 
it would be presumptuous of me, I think, to assume that I see the, diff the world differently than anybody else. Um, or twist that a little bit. We all see the world uniquely, right? The way we all see it. Um, everybody sees the world their own way. So, I mean, well, yeah, I probably do look at it my own way. I, I don't put a lot of power in that. Um, and so I, there, that, and maybe, maybe that's a cop out. Maybe that absolves me from any responsibility. I think artists have a responsibility to do their best original work, um, to do whatever it is that they are feeling this unstoppable need to do. That's the responsibility and to do it as well as you can. And that, that changes that life gets in the way. Um, uh, but I, I think everybody sees the world uniquely. Um, I just am fortunate enough to have A, the opportunity to put that out there and B, to have been able to make a living doing it. Every day that humbles me almost to my knees that I get to do this for a living. And, and, and if I lose that appreciation, I'm gonna quit because this is an amazing opportunity, amazing gift to get to do this. And, and so it is a joyous kind of thing because I've heard some, some writers say that it's the only thing that I could do. If I could do anything else, I would do it. I mean, like Rick Riley was one who used to write for Sports Illustrated and then wrote for ESPN. And he had to write publicly, like in bars and in restaurants, because he couldn't force himself to do it. Whereas, whereas for you, you're talking about this is the joyous, which is cool because it's joyous and you have an ability to communicate. Lucky. Which is super cool. <laughs> that is, that's lucky. You know, I've got a lot of great influences and great friends. My, my, one of my nearest and dearest is a photographer named Brown Cannon. He lives in, in Oregon, and but we grew up here together. We went to art school together. We were on ski patrol together. He's one of my closest friends. And he came up with a term in art school. You know, we were on very different paths, but roommates and working really hard. And he said, you know, you can't not do this. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's exactly right. Uh, for better or worse, this has been with me since I was walking. We've got doodles of, from my mom as piles of drawings from when I was three, four years old can't not do this this is the one thing i was put here to do arguably so which most people don't come to that realization no most people no, don't come to this is the one thing i was put here yeah. to do yeah and i owe a lot of that to very supportive uh, parents a very supportive community you know incredible opportunity to go to art center um and so you know so much good fortune got me here in that sense i have a responsibility to do the best i can uh, and, to, and to work really hard. And, you know, this is a, yes, there's a lot of joy and a lot of love, but it's also, uh, this can be a grind, right? It's my job, you know, uh, a job requires that you buckle down and do it. I spent a lot of time in here by myself with, a, with my arm in the air with a brush. And uh, that's not always the best place for an extrovert like me, but, um, but I do love it. And so I try to honor it, honor the art, serve the art, Nathaniel Rayliff said in our interview, and there it is on the wall. So uh, I try to every day. It is, it's funny. I, I feel like I'm going in so many different directions because I want to go back to that like three-year-old drawing on the, on the walls and stuff like that, where it all started and you can't not do it is something. But before I get there, I want to hear about the studio and in the studio, what do you do in the studio? Is there music going? is yeah and, and what what do you play what do you, what do you have going on what do you need i play uh pretty impulsive about music selection it usually has more to do with my energy or what i got to do um 
certain music will be too much energy for what I have to sit down and do. Certain energy will be or music will be way too slow. Luckily for me, I have two pretty much full-time partners in crime. My assistant, Virginia Diaseki, is a superstar and a brilliant artist in her, and I should work for her. But she has, she's from Peru. She has this big world view and this big world uh, knowledge and she has great world music taste. So when we get in a jam, we turn Virginia loose and she puts on stuff I don't even know where it comes from and it's always fabulous. So, um, uh, so a lot of music, a lot of, um, there's a lot of dogs in and out. Um, there's a lot of people around, you know, my, uh, the studio is attached to the house. So right through the door across the patio is my wife and kids. And I love that. It can be very distracting, of course, sure. But it's also very grounding and very real and very who I wanted to be as a dad and a husband. And, and so um, this is a very lively place most of the time. And I, I not only like that, I kind of need it that way. It helps me keep my energy going. Yeah, I would imagine because it can be so solitary, right? And and you're stuck in your head. This isn't any good. This is bad. I'm no good. What am I doing? I should read my mail once. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> yeah, but I, I might have had some personal experience on this. Yeah, I, I know you have. That's awesome. Yeah, it can be a lonely pursuit um, and, and you need it to be, right? We need these things to be solitary and focused on. But uh big chunk of my day there's a lot of other energy around and um, between Virginia and my studio manager Della Patterson they the best gift anyone uh, one of the best gifts anyone ever gave me is the two of them have given me the ability for them to look at my art with their eyes and reflect back to me I didn't know that was possible and they they're brilliant at it and when they leave I'm screwed so now, uh, it's a cool you thing said that you liked that you liked the blank canvas mm -hmm. And, and where does the art come from? Do you feel like in some ways, I mean, I've heard artists say this, that they don't feel like they own their art, that it's almost like they're more of a vehicle, yeah. that it passes through them. Is there. that the case for you? And, and can you make sense of that for the rest of us, if that is the case? Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to try. And I, and I will acknowledge that I understand that, that's, that sentiment that, that we you know, are not the authors of these things. Um, the word the conduit is the word I was expo exposed to. Um, about five years ago, six years ago now, maybe more even, I started taking these repeated lineup writers. You can see it in the background of this guy. Mm -hmm. And you know the iconography, those repeat, I call them lineups, real original, but those repeated silhouettes of writers coming towards you, which I cooked up after an amazing experience in China of all things. And the more traditional working cowboys and cowgirls like this guy, I started mashing them together. And the very first one ended up being very formative. And I, you know, I see it today and I think what I could do differently, but I'm so proud of it and so grateful for it. I had been up on a ladder painting the upper part of it. And I got down and I moved the ladder to the other side and I got back up and it was, I think it was about five in the morning and I was painting the left side of the upper reaches of this canvas. And I looked over and I had no physical memory of having just been there. First time in my life. like whoa how, how did that happen it scared me to be honest kind of shook me up and um and uh, but i but i sat with it for a while and i and i started to experience that very thing you're talking about like this this happened yes because of me yes through me but it also happened independent of me and um i'm becoming a big believer in that now i am the author of this you know and you asked about where's the inspiration come from i rely almost exclusively on my hand um, my hand and I have been drawing together since the very beginning. Um, we, we bicker like an old married couple, but when we're in, when we're in cahoots, 
the hand drives, the hands in charge. So when in doubt, if, if there's not an actual idea popping up, just draw. And you hear writers say, just write. Um, uh, filmmakers say, just go film things. It's true. If I just draw, things happen. That's why I think that's why I don't fear the empty page. It's always been such a great welcoming place to do anything. So um, uh, I hope that answers that question. No, it does. And But I find this super interesting, right? Because in some ways it's like, get out of the way. Oh, man. It, you know, don't take yourself too seriously. Like, oh, this is my art. I'm going to create something, which I look at through the lens of like having been a ski racer. Yeah. The hardest part is the letting go part. Like just go and create. You've done all the work. This is your chance to create. But it's like, oh, but I could lose this or I could lose that or I could embarrass myself or whatever it is. Is, is that still, is that still, is that where the bickering comes in? Is this the old married couple of like, no, no, just, just move, just move, just draw. Come on, stop. Maybe, yeah, actually for sure. I, you, my, my hand doesn't say much. So if we're bickering, I guess I should take all the blame, but there are times when it's disagreeable and doesn't do what I think it should. Right. And, uh, and I, and I've had to learn, this is funny. A couple months ago, I was painting a painting, a big one, a big red one. And it ended up working out great, but for about three days, I was fighting it, just miserable. I was in a black knot. I was just a twist. And Virginia, my assistant, showed up the Saturday morning, Monday morning, and walked into the studio. And I, I either had the music way up or I was wearing headphones, but I didn't even know she was there. She just kind of appeared at my side, and I kind of looked over, and she could tell she's very with it. She's kind of a, a Peruvian witch doctor, and she said, "I think you're asking this painting to be something it doesn't want to be." I think you just need to let it go and let it be what it wants. You know, and I was like, get out of here. Don't ever come back. You know, I was like, what are you saying to me? This and is a stake through your heart. Yeah. Kind of. It was, you know, I don't, I'm not that personal about the work, but it was certainly a kick in the ass. And I was like, and then it kind of happened. She's right. Oh my God, this painting doesn't want to be what I'm pushing it to be. So let's let it do what it wants. And it came out beautifully. I just work here. <laughs> that is absolutely hysterical. Can we get back to the early days? This is yep. the, the kid drawing on the walls. Yeah. Where, where, where did the art come from? Are there artists in the family? Or did you um, kind of just come out of the womb with like a piece of charcoal kind of thing? Or how did that I mean, work? Great question. I don't really know. I mean, my, my mom and dad are both real artistic in, in their own ways. If my dad had been a painter or a draftsman, he'd have been a brilliant one. He had a great eye and very disciplined mind for that kind of thing. My mom, very musical. So, but more importantly, the, the exposure I was afforded to the arts and the encouragement I was given for my own interest from the very beginning uh, really made all this possible. And uh, I know my mom wrestled with this a little bit when I was little, because I was pretty OCD about drawing. And I think there was a really wonderful local artist living down the block and she went and talked to him and he said, give him all the, all the material you can afford to give him and just let him hang himself with it. You know, in other words, let him do it. Uh, he'll figure it out. You know, and in high school, I didn't pay attention. I wasn't making any art. I was busy playing sports and being a, a teenage boy, but it was always with me and always, Kept, you know, in Middlebury, I took as many uh, studio art classes as I could without majoring in it. And it just has been a constant companion. And as I grew up and learned to trust it and value it and love it, it led me to art school. And um, so um, I don't know where it comes from. I really don't. It's just always made sense to me. Um, and thank goodness, you know, lucky me.
No, super lucky you and lucky us for being able to see what you do as well. Did the mediums change? I mean, because you probably started with a crayon, right? I mean, this is kind of like you're a little kid. This is what you do. Absolutely. Yep. Colored, I mean, pencils, uh, crayons, uh, really basic. You know, I'm really what I am as a draftsman, I guess. I, I consider myself a draftsman. I draw. That's what I do. Sometimes well, sometimes not. My paintings, by and large, I kind of feel like they're painted drawings. And um, I didn't paint. Uh, technically at all with oil paint and, and really very well with anything, any medium prior to going to art school. I had, I had dabbled in uh, watercolor. Uh, there's a, a brilliant watercolorist, a Western artist here in Denver named Willie Matthews, who's a dear old friend. And he, he's, he's, you know, an established superstar in our genre, but his inspiration, his example kind of got me curious. But by the time I got to art center, I had no technical training in painting. So um, the mediums have changed a lot. Uh, and gratefully and today technically everything's very mixed media you know we use collage I use charcoal and acrylic as underpainting and oil as overpainting and so kind of jump all around and that's fun because that's part of that curiosity that I want to keep stoking and keep keep vibrant so right. um, and and it is also with your hands as well where like the acrylic will will dry and the color will be more pure they'll dry more quickly whereas with the oil you can do a bit of sculpting almost with the oil but then you're not quite positive of what you're going to end up with the color and that's right it's a long time for it to dry and you've got to deal with these each medium has these very exacting parameters I mean, some are very wide and, and, and fuzzy but then some are very close in and distinct you know, ironically, everyone says, oh, you should start with watercolor. That might be the most demanding medium of all, because you have to be part chemist, part uh, meteorologist. You know, uh, you, you have to be somewhat of an alchemist with watercolor. Um, so working in mixed media, some water media, some oil media, some almost assemblage, collage media, that's that just keeps that that creativity turning and um with the addition of, of Virginia here in the studio, I, my education from her has been has been everything to me. So, uh, you know, just keep shaking the snow globe is the way I look at it. Which is, which is cool because, I mean, you've done the art history thing, too, where you think about these people. I mean, you look at like, OK, Sistine Chapel or those kinds of things where where it's like you had to be an artisan in order to be an artist, right, to create to create the the what was it like the volcanic ash in the midst of this so that so because it was it was dank there and they had to find a way that they yeah. could represent this, these paintings and not have it just totally diminish and yeah. you know over time and but that's part of being an artist it's like okay the problem it's not just okay here's a picture this is what I did it's like how do I take this idea and make it all happen I would imagine for you that that's part of that's the intriguing part in some ways. And me, yeah, very much so, especially uh, as I allow the icon to push me to look at it, challenge myself to look at it differently, which is something I'm learning to do. And really, you know, this this beloved iconography of the American cowboy and, and the culture it represents is really, really well known. You know, it's, it's, it's worldwide uh, and it's it's kind of in our human fabric now and for better or worse. And it can take a lot. It's taking everything I can throw at it. So that's just kind of carte blanche to keep trying to look at it differently. And it, when I reflect on what the West has been and gone through and evolved to be and continues to evolve to be in my lifetime, it's so different than the historical romantic West of pop culture that back to your question about responsibility, if I have any, it's to try to push it every direction I can to 
push it to be of its time now, you know, and, and these, I, these people are, are out there, the big ranches, and we do a lot of traditional horseback work, and we love every minute of it. Um, but there's a, and that sounds and looks maybe very traditional and, and nostalgic, but it's also, you know, the ones that I resonate with, are these people who are trying to push it to be sustainable, evolve it into the future, make it work forward, not so much with an ear or an eye to the past. So which is the visual, but it's also the representation, right? I mean, like we're starting with like Buffalo Bill. Yeah. And right. you know, now now you've got now you've got Kevin Costner. Uh, you know, I don't know how that fits into the whole thing, but 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 where it's going and what it represents as as a as a as a an icon of American life. And, and is that, does that icon of American life persist? Is it something that is just nostalgic or is it still a representation of who we are as people? Is that, is that, are those questions that you're trying to ask? Absolutely. In fact, only ask, I don't have any answers, but I, I, but I really celebrate the asking of those questions and, and to, to add one or two, if it is a reflection of who we are, or if it isn't, was it ever? You know, it's this tiny slice of our cultural fabric would be the rural Western lifestyle. So is it fair to say that all Americans appreciate, understand cowboys? No. Is it fair to say that it's a big part of who we are? No. Isn't that interesting that it's one of our most recognized icons globally? Yeah. Um, and is it, is it, this is one of the challenges that I think is fascinating right now in this day and age and all of the clashes of cultures we seem to be experiencing. Is this a good thing? Are there people for whom this represents negatively? You know, if you're, if you're uh, either, I'm speculating, I don't mean to, but it's what I think about. If you're Native American, what does this mean to you? If you're, um, <clears throat> if you're really conscientiously worried about how we grow food and whether that, that's good or bad for the, for the planet, what does this mean to you? Yeah. And, and, and I actually am grateful for those questions. Uh, because the answer is out there in all of it. Um, and it makes me wonder, why do I keep coming back to this? How is it relevant? How is it changeable? How is it reflective uh, to who we are? So it's, it's a big subject. It's kind of and fun. How is it inclusive in yeah. some ways? Or, too. Or, or exclusive, right? Or exclusive, exactly. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I love that you said inclusive because one of my growing beliefs, tenets uh, for myself is, we can, we should, and we will include more people in this legacy. We have to, because as you and I both know, the, the West is very different and it, it, it continues to evolve and change. I mean, look in the last 18 months, the, the, the population crush on the Intermountain West, thanks to COVID, is almost unprecedented. And what does that mean to the West? What does it mean to the historic cultures of the West? What does it mean to the people who've been here for generations or centuries? What does it mean? What does it mean? And again, I don't have an answer, but I'm really, really increasingly grateful for the questions. Well, and, and it has to make its way into your art too, right? This is, this is part of it. It's like if you're chewing on that question, it makes its way into some sort of a visual yeah. representation. I hope so. That's really well said. I, I really hope so. I hope, I mean, that's my, that would be my goal is to let it in and let it affect what I do. So how, 
open to those? How much do you seek those kinds of questions, the environmental questions, the the you know the the displacement of Native American kind of questions, the the big ranches, the the methane, the yep. uh, you know like these kinds of things. How much do you how much do you do you dig into that? Increasingly, more and more. Um, you know, and like you've said, and I, I will always be grateful for the childhood hero worship of this iconography, and I will never apologize for it. But uh, increasingly, I try really hard uh, to look deep into it. Uh, there's a couple of, I've gotten to know some, some local, both Colorado and regional ranchers, multi-generations ranchers who are doing some really thought-provoking, stimulating, optimistic work uh, through ranching to try to address some of these very things. Uh, my great friend Duke Phillips and his whole family at Ranchlands. This is one of the broadest thinkers I know, this whole family. And they're constantly trying to bridge the gap between rural and urban, consumer and food producer. They are not afraid of the question of, should we be eating meat? Should we be growing meat on the planet with the, the very obvious signs to what it does wrong? And when you have someone who is generations deep in ranching and beef production say, absolutely, we should eat less meat. And the meat we should eat should be grown like this and not like that. That's really impressive to me. That's hard to argue with. Like you, you feel like there's a chance you're risking your livelihood by having this point of view. Like, yeah, and we should. It matters. We should risk everything to do this right. So I, those are the energies that are capturing my attention. And I, this is so crazy. The timing on this. About three, two weeks ago on Instagram, someone I've never met reached out and said, "Do you ever paint Native Americans?" And I said, no, um, but only because I don't know any. I don't know that culture and I, I, I don't know how to even begin. And he wrote back and said, well, you know us and we love what you do. Keep firing and come see us. And this was a kid from, I assume a kid, seemed energy, energy seemed young, from a, a, a Navajo reservation. And the organization that he was reaching out through is like all about empowering young Navajo youth to be creative. And I was like, you know, so increasingly I'm trying really hard to ask those questions, to seek out that information and find where the truth lies, because that's all we got. Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting that you say that I'm reading right now, Shadow Catcher, which is uh, oh, yeah. Edward Carter. Who, uh, Curtis. Yeah. Isn't that great? Edward Curtis. Yeah. 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 Edward Curtis. And who went and, uh, and was uh, trying to document the, the, Native American culture before it, it disappeared in assimilation effectively. That's a great book. Oh, it's, a, it's amazing, you know, and like getting JP Morgan to help fund it and all of these things, like all the, the places that he had to go in order to kind of make it to make it happen. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and in some ways, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, it's funny because it, it's back to that nostalgia question in some ways too, right? Of like, but it's not nostalgia. In so it's almost like it's it's capturing a moment in our existence that allows us to be able to look back on it as a reference, yeah. So that we don't lose it. You know, it's almost like that memory of it's like you wake up in the morning and you go, "What an amazing dream!" And thirty seconds later, you're like, I don't remember that dream anymore. Yeah. Well, that's that magic realm of photography. Right. That's that. That's what for all the magic and power of, of, of two dimensional physical art, photography has its own realm and it can walk both lines. This is what it was. 
forever what it is. It's fascinating to me. That's a great story. I love that story. And, you know, I think about him a lot. I read that book about a year ago, and I, I think about him a lot because he was, unlike my heroes, Remington and Russell, who were hearkening back and, and, and using artifacts uh, and maybe, maybe a couple of models who actually lived that life, they were kind of telling a story that was representationally, narratively. Curtis was taking pictures of the people before they were gone. And I just thought that was fascinating. I think that's really cool. So yeah, those kinds of things drive me all the time now. Well, it's that's fascinating. And it's also fascinating given what you had said before about the idea of bridging the gap, that which which seems more and more important right now. And and it's really easy to not be able to bridge the gap through yeah. ignorance. Uh, about yeah, whatever bigger. else is going on. But the yeah. more we know, the easier it is to at least try to bridge that gap. Yeah. It's that, 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 just on that one point with those friends of mine, when he said that to me, he used that expression. It really, I, I don't think I caught it at first, but when I got caught on to what he was talking about, you know, bridging the gap between rural and urban and, and consumer and producer, I, I realized the reason he was doing it was for his own edification, for his own growth. He wanted to be connected. And, you know, he could easily be out on the ranch, happy as a clam, living an isolated life, but that's not how he's wired. And, and it was such a great reminder, you know, we all need to be connected. In this day and age, the disconnect is running supreme, reigns supreme. So it may be more important now than ever. Uh, but it was fascinating to watch someone perpetuate that, make that their kind of MO, share it with the world and find out the reason he did it was for his own growth. That's pretty incredible. Which oftentimes is how things have to happen. So your what is your hashtag? The uh, art is life, life is art, and and art is hard. Yeah, pretty much. Life is art, and art is life, and art does not come easy. Not come easy. Okay, that's the appropriation from uh, a river runs through it. The great book by Norman MacLean that every all fly fishermen and most Westerners have read and love. Of course, the movie. But in the book, he, they talk about their father was the Presbyterian minister and. Um, Fly fishing, like art, came through grace, and and grace does not come easy. And uh, I, I stole it, but but it's true. I mean, uh, if I stop appreciating all that it takes to do this, and that it's hard, and that that's okay, I think I'm in trouble. I've, I've lost the point of doing it. So I remind myself every day: this is not easy, and that's the way we want it. Well, it's not the way we, it's the way we want it, but it's also it's not just the 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 process of actually creating art it's it's all of these other questions that you're asking yourself the idea of bridging a gap the idea of like how does how does this all fit in and and you get that moment of clarity which i'd imagine as an artist you were looking for those those moments where you're like whoa like i was in it like it happened how yeah. often does that happen for you not enough it's funny i don't look for it but i'm so grateful when it shows up you know, um, this is a process of reinvention every day. And, uh, and I think of you a lot. I mean, you, you talked about being a ski racer. You've been two kinds of ski racers in my experience, right? And you had to reinvent what you were after you got hurt. And I never will get over the, the, the strength and grace and acceptance you, you at least exhibited to me. I just, it took uncommon courage to be where you were in that experience and come out the other side a whole different kind of world-class skier like of course your wads you know but it, I think about that all the time reinvention in the face of unimaginable odds is all we've got and uh in some ways gratefully right I mean um 
the chance to redo this every day, the chance to push this to be something every day without it being a moral threat to me is pretty amazing. So, well, I would imagine, and as you were talking about the courage, the courage, I mean, especially like as an artist on some level is the courage to be yourself. Yeah. Is, is the biggest courage out there, right? I, I think you're right. I don't know that I'd have said that, but I think you're right. I mean, it takes a lot of courage to be your own thing. And, and I have a quote, I have lots of quotes on the walls besides that one. There's one over that says, uh, if you want to be original, be prepared to be wrong. And I love that. Uh, that's from that guy who did the TED Talks, Sir Richard, uh, what's his name? Um, oh, the British um, guy. The, the uh, Richard Robin, is it Robinson? No. Maybe. I think you turned me on to him, in fact. And I watched his TED Talk and he has, he says that. He's like, you want to be original, be, be prepared to be wrong. And I was like, oh my God, that's going on the studio wall immediately. So, uh, I owe you one for that one. No, and we need to be surrounded by these things in order to know. Your buddy said you you can't not do this. When did you know that you could not, you know, that, that you had to do it? Uh, I guess I've known in various ways and different times throughout my life. I mean, you know, when a gallery approached me when I got out of art school, and we had a show and it went well. That was certainly, uh, wow, this could work. And it takes a little bit of that encouragement um, to, 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 to want to try. Um, and, you know, as I put myself out there, things kept working out, um, people kept responding. And, and, and I consider that an amazing gift because there are a lot of hardworking, talented people out there who don't get that response. And so, you know, uh, but in terms of well, being aware that I can't not do it, that being really genuinely feeling that way, I think that's a little more recent. You know, I've had to grow up. I'm 52 now. I'm starting to finally maybe be an adult and uh, and appreciate that. You know, uh, my great friend Scotty Parker in New Mexico says, this is better work out because you're wholly unemployable. And I love that expression. And, and he's an artist too. He gets it. So I know I'm learning to understand that this is really what I'm here for and what an amazing opportunity and great good fortune that is. So um, I think that's a newer, a newer awareness that I've had. That is interesting because I would have thought, because there are really two parts of that, right? The, the one part of like, I can't not do it. Like, this is the thing that I have to do. Yeah. Then there's the second part of like, oh, maybe I can hang around and actually do this as a profession, which is which is sort of the second part. You kind of answered both of them at the same time sort of thing. Because yeah. there's that realization of like, okay, I'll be in this business. Like this is going to be my career. And if you say you're unemployable, I guess you, you know, you go, okay, well, I, this is my business because I don't know. I, I wasn't the one who said I was unemployable. I think he's right, but I didn't say it. Um, that, you know, that it's funny. I love that you just asked that because I genuinely don't know that I actually think of this as, okay, I'm going to do this. I mean, I, I really think of this more as bouncing from opportunity to opportunity and having unbelievable luck along the way. And Tammy, my wife is a superstar. She, yeah, I couldn't do this without Tam. She's strong and courageous and believes in this uh, with her whole body, her whole, her whole soul. So, you know, we just keep going one from one thing to the next. And you know, I look back every once in a while and someone will say something or I'll be doing a magazine interview and they'll say something and I'll say, that's how I'm perceived. You know, I just don't think of it that way. Every day is how do we do it better? Every day is uh, how do we do it at all? Um, I, I guess one step at a time is how to do this for me. Well, you also, you mentioned earlier that the, each one might be the last one. 
yeah, this sure might be that. the last one you ever do. And, oh, and and then you, okay, well, if this is the last one I ever do, how do I continue to put food on the table and roof over the head and those kinds of things, which are important. Don't go there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, back when the 2008 recession hit, uh, this studio was brand new and I was really out over a pickle barrel and stressed out and worried. And I think I was in a dangerous uh, way. I was kind of complaining to my dad and, uh, and he was wonderful and he was very supportive, but he was also kind of no BS. And he, I, he said, what is it you think you, you, you're entitled to, or you should have some kind of guarantee? And I said, well, that would feel good. He said, you know, and he'd run his own business and grown a company. And he said, when the buck stops with you, there's no guarantee. When your name's on the door, there's no guarantee. And he said, you know, you might actually have the only guarantee I've ever heard of. And I was like, lay it on me. What is it? He said, if you don't paint it, I guarantee you ain't going to sell it. <laughs> like, hmm. Gee, thanks, dad. I really appreciate hearing that, you know. Exactly. <laughs> but he was so spot on. I think about it all the time. He's been gone 10 years. And I think about him every day for that kind of no nonsense, like, get back to work. Laying the wisdom on you. I remember reading about some uh, some writer who said that he looked at his checkbook every morning. That got him to work. And he's like, hmm, all right, better go to work. Now. That's brave. I'm far too skittish for that. That's hysterical. <laughs> There's no money in here. Let's go to work. Let's oh, make it happen. Yeah. Necessity, the mother of invention. What about the hedging? The hedging of, you know, so, so you're an artist. But I mean, like you had a great education. We both went to Middlebury. You had a great education. You, you, wh whether your friend says you're unemployable now or not, you know, you, 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 you had a chance at one point of being employable, doing, well, doing other things, possibly getting paid every two weeks, 401k, health insurance, those kinds of things. Oh. How did that battle work for you? Like the response that we talked about responsibility, the responsibility of like being effectively a grown up. Mm. And you might be, this is the way I described being an athlete was I was in suspended adolescence. And I think I retired when I was 36 years old. So I was in suspended adolescence up through 36 years old. Is being an artist like being in suspended adolescence? And what was the responsibility question that you had to ask yourself? Well, yes, I feel like it is a suspended adolescence or, or a suspended uh, uh, attachment to the dreaminess of childhood, for sure, for me don't mean to put anybody else under the bus, but uh, in terms of the responsibility, that's a combination of ignorance and privilege, to be honest. I, I didn't face these scary problems, these scary questions in advance because uh, I never had had to, and I didn't, I didn't know to worry about this stuff. And there've been a lot of sleepless nights in, in the years since I started doing this thinking, oh man, I should have paid attention. I should have done that. You know, I'm about to send kids off to college. Like, Am I ready for this? But, uh, you know, uh, I think you just, we just make it work, you know, and, and, and the every day that it does, I need to be grateful because, you know, the world throws things at us. Right. And, uh, I've had very little thrown at me with to challenge this as the way I make a living. And that is, I should be really endlessly grateful for that. It is, but you didn't have those moments of like, I should go to law school. I should go to med school. I should go. I was trying to go to med school when I when I was introduced to Art Center. Uh, I uh, I didn't study uh, pre med in college, and then I, I got I came back here. I was a ski patrolman at Steamboat. Got my EMT. Really enjoyed working with people and helping people who were injured, and you know 
pretty minor stuff really in the scope of how people can get hurt. But I, I loved what I was doing and thought maybe I should do this. And someone said, well, maybe you ought to be a doctor. Well, that's fascinating. So I actually ended up back in California at a post-bac pre-med program at the Claremont Colleges and loved it, worked my tail off. Uh, a year into a 15 month experience, I woke up in a cold sweat, like, I don't wanna be a doctor, science isn't my thing. Grateful for it, but it scared the hell out of me. And that's when a, a, a dear friend here from Colorado, who I, who's very creative and we fish together, he said, do me a favor, before you run for the hills, go look at the Arts Center College of Design. So I literally went from the pre-med track to, to art school in about three months. Interesting. I mean, interesting that we started kind of on the Da Vinci side too, right? Where yeah, he was totally. the guy who was who was buying, you know, buying corpses effectively and like dissecting yeah. them and going, what are the how are the muscles working? How do I create a smile? What what has to happen? And yeah. all of these things. So they are they are they are closely related. They they certainly can be. I know a lot of doctors who are who are artists in their spare time. Uh, but, and maybe they're a curiosity that, that they're very similar. I, I felt very different about my experience trying to go to med school. It was a, it was a blitz. It was a, it was a, 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 a adrenaline sensation. And when it came very clear that it was not for me, it was, it was actually really scary and daunting. And I'd never really been in that position before. And, and there comes the ignorance and the privilege. I mean, thanks to, uh, what I'd been allowed to do and the opportunity to go to art center, I didn't have to really confront that demon in a way. So um, the best thing I could do was, I mean, when art center became a possibility, there was no doubt for me, zero. I mean, I knew when I walked in the door, if they're going to let me in, if they let me in, I'm coming here and I don't know how I'll, I'll if I can't pay for it, I'll, I'll, you know, deliver pizzas to pay for it, whatever it takes. And, and that clarity was really important. I'd never had it before. And so that was uh that was a, a big piece of, of getting to this stage, I think. That clarity and that personal commitment of like, I am on the right path. Like you got diverged and, and pushed in another direction and in a direction that you really should have gone yeah. anyway. Yeah. And, and, and the world kind of asked briefly, like, what if we say no? What if you can't, what if you don't get in? What if you can't figure out how to, how to pay the tuition? What if you, what if you, what if you? And I just, I, every time I kept coming back with, I'll go sleep on the lawn. If I have to, I'll, uh, if they don't let me in, it's going to be the worst thing they ever did because I'm going to be a badger until they do. You know, I just knew I wanted to be there. And uh, I think that carried over to when I got in. I just had never been anywhere so exciting in my life. Uh, these teachers, these stu students I was working with, they were younger. I was 25 when I went to art school. There were 18, 19 year olds in, the, in, my, in my discipline that were so talented and so driven. And it, it was humbling and inspiring and terrifying. It was great. I loved it really great. What was it like to come to that moment of clarity, that moment of clarity of like, this is what I need to do. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to make it happen. Do you, do, do you still bring that forward with you? Sure. Yeah. Because I don't think I knew it at the time, the way I know it now. Um, at the time I was thrilled and excited and stimulated and kind of burning all cylinders you know I, I we my roommate and I had a little place down by the Rose Bowl because the school's up in an arroyo above the Rose Bowl I would ride my bike to class I would rollerblade up this ridiculous street this steep street to go to this cool school and I just was in it and, you know and, and I loved it I knew I loved it it was not always fun but it was great and it, the appreciation for it I think came after the fact you know um, the experiences the people I met uh, the things I learned as that 
as I became aware of that, that was after I got out. And, um, but the clarity I look back on now and think, what a gift, unbelievable. Maybe the only time. Yeah. Because that moment doesn't happen in life, you know, of like, yes, this and whatever it takes that that is it I am full in I mean I feel like we as human beings want to have sort of like a fundamentalist approach to life you know like we have this desire like make it black and white and you're like okay black and white boom I am in that is it I know what I'm doing there's no other choice you talked about and and I'm not quoting directly on this that that it it stirred like your competitive artistic desire what what does that mean because competition and artistic in some ways feel like they they can be at odds yeah for sure and i'm actually generally not a believer in in competition in the arts i think that it, it undermines the art like i said it's about expression how do you compete with your self-expression but what it awoke in me was a competition with myself an academic uh artistic competition with myself and 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 you know, we knew each other at school I, I was not always doing school so good when I was in middle grade, and and I don't regret it. But I I had to learn a lot. Art Center was like seek and destroy, um, uh, do it all, do as well as you can. You know, worried about my GPA, you know, of all things. But I, but I loved that, and it kind of awoke something in me, a determination and and a drive and a competitiveness. And there were these brilliantly talented people around, and just being among them felt amazing. And I'll never forget. The first week of school, sitting at the lunch table with some new classmates, much younger than I in most cases, and my friend Chris Alsman. Chris Alsman is still a good friend of mine. We don't stay as touch as much as we'd like, but Christian is younger than I am, and he said, at "Day three, I'm going to go work for George Lucas." <laughs> and we were like, "Sure, you're going to go work for George Lucas. Yeah, good boy, nice job." He's a he's a senior concept designer for Industrial Light Magic. He's exactly working for George. He invented BB-8, the rolling droid from the latest round of, of Star Wars. Oh. He's, a, he's a genius. He's the best guy. He's so down to earth. And he's not painting the way he did. He's, he does everything digitally, but he is so talented. And he knew what he wanted to do. That's the caliber of the people I was hanging around with. And then but about two days later, someone came up in the conversation and we were getting introduced. He said, oh yeah, you're the horse guy. I mean, we'd been in school a week. And I was like, I'm the horse guy? What is that supposed to mean? And just that feeling included among these people who I admired so much was huge and, and gave me permission to just keep going. So I guess that's what I mean by the competitive part. No, and that's and and it's the competitive, like the growth part. I mean, we kind of st- talked about some of the the static part, the nostalgia, and yeah. versus the growth of like I'm in, like whichever way you're going to push me, I'm going to grow, and I'm all in on however you want to make me grow. That's exactly right. I love that. You know, the first time someone at art school said, "Have you seen this guy's drawings?" Talking about me. All it really made me do was go, oh my God, I love it here. I love being here. This is where I belong. It was so cool. You know, it was great. I loved it. It's funny with the, so we're looking at some of the paintings. I mean, we see some of your paintings, but you've done a variety of other different things. I mean, some which which are paintings, but it's it's interesting just to sort of look at some of the, uh, like like an announcement, like the, uh, like the stampede, uh, the Calgary stampede. Yeah, that which actually was a a person, right? A right. The one time I actually uh, put aside my own personal direction and followed their direction to paint uh, Vern's uh, portrait, and uh, Vern uh, Lonsbury was his name, a legendary Calgary cowboy, 
and just a, a poet and a and a just a, a a treasure in Alberta. And he was very ill with cancer at the time, and that that experience was really formative to me because it kind of um, afforded me an opportunity to see when done right, what my art could do to connect with people. And Vern's family was so warm and so amazingly appreciative, uh, shockingly so. And I got to meet him at the very end. You know, they auctioned the painting. You know, a local businessman paid a bunch of money and it went to charity. And, and, a bunch uh, of money, $94,000, am I right in that? It was, it was, it was funny when they were auctioning it and they were telling the price and the previous year's piece had gone for more. And the, the guy was saying 16,000, 17,000, 18,000. It kind of petered out. I'm like, we're not even going to clear 20 grand. I'm looking for a window to dive out. And, but I was mishearing him. He was saying 60, 70, 80. And when it hit me, I didn't know what to do. I was so blown away. And, uh, so swept up in it. And then I get to go up on stage and meet Vern. And he's, you know, uh, noticeably affected by, by morphine at these very late stages of his illness. And he's wearing this beautiful fringed deerskin jacket and he has this sparkle in his eye. And I did the whole thing. The painting's called The OH Comes Home. And it was a nod to traditional ranching as the foundation for the entire China, uh, Calgary Stampede experience. And they'd purchased this big ranch outside of town as a gift to the, to the Stampede, this education facility, summer range for their livestock. It was a really big momentum uh, shift for them. And I got to be the chronicler of it as the poster artist. It was profound and uh, never, I'll never shake it off. I mean, I'm drinking my coffee out of the mug, right? Oh, <laughs> oh how cool. Well how, done. How cool is that? So uh, a huge, a huge experience. It's, it's something I'll never I'll never get over it, to be honest. It was really fun. But uh, yeah, I get to stretch my legs a little bit sometimes, um, either from opportunity or from necessity. Uh, I still dabble in the fly fishing uh, genre a little bit here and there. And I still would love to paint landscapes. I, I used to paint them a lot. I'd like to paint them again. Um, so I get, to, I get to move around a little bit. It, it, it's really interesting. And just looking at, and the stampede is, is a rodeo as well, right? I mean, that's the that's what it is, is a rodeo. And, but when I, was, when I was looking at that, I was like, wow, like this is sort of in my mind, it was sort of reminiscent of some of the things like that Picasso did early on where, where he was yeah. doing announcements for like parties and, and, and events and these kinds of things, you know, poster kind of deals, which is, which is funny because you like, as the outside person, you think, oh, well, I'm sure Picasso just just started doing paintings and he did paintings and people said this is amazing and so we'll buy those and but but no it's 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 part of the artist is is you're doing a wide variety of different things and not necessarily always the same medium or the or right. the medium of choice right to yeah or genre right you can you can be asked or forced to 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 move to a different genre altogether and um, I, personally I think of those things as a great opportunity um, and when you're getting started, I think you do whatever it takes to make a living. Uh, and that's, I think that's where a lot of artists get, get derailed from a full-time art making life is that they got to make a living. And so they, they get off into a side thing that goes well, and, and, but that's a challenge. And uh, I've been really lucky. This is for better or worse, kept the lights on since I started doing it, which is pretty great. And you said now that you are busier than you've ever been. Like what's, what's going on? What is keeping you so busy? 
you know, gratefully, there just is a lot of interest in what I'm doing and a lot of demand for um, what I'm putting out there. And it's it's a very cool, humbling, slightly terrifying experience. Uh, the to-do list is very long. Um, my team, these two fabulous ladies who run my studio are uh, brilliant at keeping all of the balls in the air. And we just, uh, we're kind of in uncharted waters for me uh, in terms of the, the recent last couple of years demand. And uh, it's an amazing thing. It really and is. Is it demand for paintings? Is it demand for, okay. Yeah, and you know, most, most of what I do and people always wanna know how many pieces do you do a year? Like, well, that's kind of hard to tell because we just did a commission for a, a corporate collector in Texas of 90 individual paintings. And that sounds terrifying. I get it. It is terrifying. I painted it. But they're, they're 12 by four inch tiles with a single rider, you know, one of those lineup riders in different colors in their own frames. And it took a lot of time for sure and a lot of energy. But, you know, do you, do you factor that in and say, well, there's 90 canvases and then there's 27 over here. I, I, don't, I just don't operate that way. But a lot and of are those on canvases or are those on, on wood? Wood tiles. Yeah. We just take pieces of masonite. And you've seen some of the paintings I do that we glue them all together and they look like a mosaic of colored like chiclets almost. That's kind of where that was born from. And um, they're really fun. We're going to have a bunch ready for the Christmas last minute here in a couple of days. And so, um, you know, uh, I forget what I was telling you, but uh, the, the 90 paintings. And is it mostly commissions that you do? Yeah, that's what, uh, predominantly. I still have one or two really important gallery partners, um, most notably the Altamira Gallery in Jackson Hole and Scottsdale. Those guys are really near and dear and great partners in this um, for me. Uh, and but a lot of what I do, you know, we've got a to-do list over here on a dry erase board, and those are mostly commissions. And that is, uh, some artists don't love commissions. I get that. Um, I, I cherish them. I think they're great fun. A lot of this I was going to paint anyway. So it's nice to have someone's energy involved and the how and why and what size and what color. I welcome all of it. And um, and it's, you know, it's, it's all done right here. The point of sale is right here. We don't have a lot of um, other fingers in the pie, if you will. So it's, it's a different way to do it, but I, it's how we've been doing it um, now for a few years, especially since Della Patterson's uh, joined us and she's now been with me six years. So we really have kind of a cool system. We go to a lot of sites and, and inspect the site, measure what would be the right size and help them come to the conclusion what what style, color, you know, that kind of thing. It's and really fun. You draw with people too, right? For these commissions where you're drawing and kind of I, I draw kind of what you're I, thinking and yeah. It, absolutely. And I draw before we ever exchange any money. Uh, and I don't mean to celebrate that, but I think it's kind of unique. It feels like a good buy-in from my side. You know, this is what I got from our discussions and our visit to your house. And here's five or six drawings. Do any of these resonate with you? And hopefully they do. And off we go. So. Wow. And, and so, so where can people, where can people find you? I think the most, uh, current place to follow what we've got going on here is probably Instagram. Mm -hmm. uh, that's pretty much my, my platform of choice anymore. And it's, it's uh, yeah, the most current stuff will be there. Of course, my website, dukebeardsleystudio.com. Um, and it's dukebeardsleystudio on Instagram as well, right? Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, good. Yep. And um, those are the two best places. Uh, and then in, in terms of somebody wanting to really talk about it, um, just reach out through any of those platforms, um, Della will get back in touch with you. And this is supposed to be a really fun process for the client, first and foremost. You know, you you and you, a potential client and, and a painting, 
have a much longer relation together than you or I or myself in the painting. So I take a lot of that into consideration and, and your motivation, your energy, as much as you do or don't want to participate, we welcome. So uh, it's supposed to be a fun experience for the collector. Duke, thanks so much, man. This has been an absolutely cool journey through what you do and, and the iconography, the, the everything and, and your connection with the connection with, with, with your home in a lot of ways. I mean, it seems like this is, this is, this is your home and you're celebrating your home. Well, thank you, Wads. I appreciate so much uh, being able to join you. It's, it's always a treat to, to be with you. And uh, you know, you're an inspiration, my man. You really are. And you have been for a lot of years. So thanks for all you do and for letting me join you. It's been great fun. It's awesome. And I look forward to, I, I said this the last time, I've got to get back to your studio. I want to come yeah. back and check it out. Next time I'm in, I'm in Denver. You, you, you know, you've always got an invite. You know where it is. And we look forward to having you. That'd be awesome. I look forward to it. Thank you to all of you for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed this. The greatest gift that you can give to us is to like us, to follow us, to tell your friends, to tune in, that you will get an amazing journey that lasts an hour, maybe a little bit more, but you'll have a lot of fun and you'll come out learning something. Duke, I go into these things hoping that I'm going to learn something. I learned an absolute ton today. So thanks so much. And thanks, thank you all. We'll see you next time. Cheers. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.